Well, good morning, church. I hope you're as excited as I am to dig into God's Word. We're going to be in the book of Acts. We've been studying through Acts together, and today we find ourselves in chapter 2, close to the end of Acts chapter 2. Uh, the theme that we've had for this series and through our study in the book of Acts is we are kingdom people. We are kingdom people. If you remember at the beginning of this book in chapter 1, um, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to send the Holy Spirit. They were going to be baptized in the Spirit. We got the, the Bible reading to us. That's awesome. That, no worries. <laughs> Uh, but in chapter one, Jesus told his disciples they were going to be baptized in the spirit. And immediately they responded with, will you at this time bring your kingdom to Israel? And so all, all of what we read in the book of Acts is the building of the kingdom and the coming of kingdom people. So when we look at the book of Acts, what we're seeing is that we are kingdom people. And here's what I mean when I say that. Put this at the top of your of your sermon guide there, you notes. What we mean is that we have a king. We have a king. His name is Jesus Christ. You're not in charge. I'm not in charge. Jesus Christ is our king. The second thing we see is that he's building his kingdom. He's doing that through his rescuing work on the cross and his reigning work on his throne. Jesus is building his kingdom. And thirdly, the church, and this is where we'll spend our time today, is the community of people in his kingdom. So the church of Jesus Christ is this new, newly formed community of people established through the Holy Spirit by the gospel with a king, with King Jesus. We talked about last time how we are ordinary people. With extraordinary power through the Holy Spirit, called and empowered for a purpose. And that is to multiply Jesus' people around the world. So our text today describes this community of faith. It's a, it's a beautiful description of what this new family, this new body is meant to look like. And it's a kind of description that's, well, it's powerful. It's bold. It's, uh, it's unique. What we're going to see, and this, is, this will be the goal of our message today, would be to show the power of God to establish a unified people for His glory. The goal of our, of our message today, looking at this text, is to, to show the power of God to establish a unified people for His glory. So look with me, if you will, at Acts chapter 2. And I know you just got seated, but would you stand with me in honor of God's Word? Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read from verse 42 through 47. Luke writes, by way of the Holy Spirit, here's what he says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number that day, or day by day, those 
who were being saved. Father, this is your word. May your spirit be our teacher today as we look at it. As we expound on this word today, I pray, God, that you be exalted. Jesus, you be exalted. And your people, your kingdom people would be edified by the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to spend the next couple of weeks on this text. We're going to be in this little passage for the next few weeks. We're going to look at um, the passion of this church, the priorities of this church, the patterns of this new church. And so today what I want to do is do a quick exegetical overview of the whole text. And then I want to focus in on one aspect. And that is um, the title of this message is that uh, we have a community that is gospel revealing. It's a gospel revealing community. I'll I'll explain what I mean by that. But let's just look uh, quickly and do a quick walk through uh, exegetical walk through the text. The Bible says in verse 42 that they were devoting themselves to some things. So uh, they're they're devoting themselves to, first, um, the apostles' teaching. What is the significance of that? Why does it matter? Well, they're devoting themselves to knowing Christ. That's the point. The reason they're devoted to the apostles' teachings is because um, the apostles were the ones who knew Christ the best. They've been walking with Jesus for for three years. They'd seen him uh, do miracles. They watched him turn water into wine at Cana. They watched him walk on water. They they watched him sleep in the boat uh, through the storm and then wake up and speak to the storm. And it was quiet. He spoke peace into their hearts. They they watched him heal the lame, the blind, the leper, uh, and so on. They've seen Christ and his miracles. Then they watched him die. They they saw him surrender his life in sacrifice. Then they saw him rise victoriously from the grave. He spent 40 days with them, teaching them the truths about the kingdom. And then they watched him ascend to his place on his throne in glory. This is the apostles' teaching. They're going to know things that no one else is going to know. If you remember, Jesus taught in parables a lot. And uh, he he would teach in a parable and the whole crowd would be like, what in the world? Then he'd turn around and go, here's what I mean, guys. And he'd turn and explain and teach to his apostles. And so these early believers are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching because that teaching is going to be the foundation for what the church believes. And today what we do is we look to the scriptures. We don't just have the apostles' teachings, we have their writings. So we look to the apostles' teachings as well. We read in the scriptures to discover and to know Christ, the apostle Paul. He wrote and said that everything else is rubbish except for knowing Christ, right? Philippians 3, I consider all things lost apart from the knowing Christ and the fellowship of his suffering. So these, this new church, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. I want you to hear this, church. We can only know who we are as kingdom people when we know who he is, our king. So we can only know who we are when we know who he is. And the only way we know who he is is through this word he's given us. Amen. They devoted themselves to fellowship. The Bible says they were devoted to unity with Christ and one another. First John one and and chapter four says that uh, if we say we love God and hate our brother, we're we're liars. And, And first John one actually says, if you have fellowship with God, you will have fellowship with his people. 
So they are committed to this kind of koinonia fellowship. That's the Greek word. I think you've probably heard it before. But that word fellowship doesn't just mean people that get together and have some food. You know, that's typically the way we talk about it. Hey, we're going to have a fellowship. Well, that means we're going we're gonna to eat probably, right? Or we tend to like sanctify any activity just by throwing the word fellowship on the back end. Like, um, men, we're going to have a teach you fellowship. <laughs> or uh, ladies, we're going to have a, a tea fellowship, right? Um, we, we, don't, we like to make whatever activity holy by calling it a fellowship. That's not what the Bible's talking about here. This is a unique kind of commitment, a unique kind of sharing life with one another. It's true. It's intimate. It's raw. It's real. I was talking this morning um, to one of our elders just about um, some suffering that's going on with uh, a young couple and just just talking through how um, the church is meant to be there with people through their messiness. Amen. But without real fellowship, it's not there. If, if we're not able to be real and raw and honest and broken with one another, we can't have real community. What we see with these people, this early church, is they're committed to raw, real, honest, Christ-centered koinonia fellowship. So biblical fellowship means that we celebrate together in life's joys. It means we weep together in life's pains and sorrows. We weep together. It means we confess sin to one another. I know that sounds crazy, but I need to have brothers that I can tell I'm struggling. And you need it too, because we all struggle, right? This is one thing I love about our Celebrate Recovery ministry is people come here knowing that everybody else is broken too. Right, Lou? We come here, we're not ashamed of our brokenness because we know that everybody else coming is broken. We come here and celebrate recovery because we know that this is where we find the one who can fix our brokenness. This is the beauty of koinonia fellowship. We serve one another. We meet needs. We bear burdens together. We encourage one another in faith and following Jesus no matter the cost. This is true biblical fellowship. This fellowship is real and raw. It's beautiful and it puts the gospel on display. Kingdom people are devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. So this means that they they shared meals together. And oftentimes at the end of a meal, they would uh, have communion, the Lord's Supper. They would celebrate Passover. So we see that their their gathering was Christ centered. When they would come together, it wasn't just, you know, to to eat meal, eat a food and and, and watch something on TV. You know, when when they come together, they come with this Christ-centered gravitational pull that brings us together, that honors and celebrates his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection. You know, there's something about eating together that really does bond people. Um, I spent four months in China in 2005. And when I first got there, I didn't know anyone. I I, I landed and, and knew absolutely no one. And we sat to a meal and, uh, at, a, at a big round table. Um, and in the middle of the table was this huge lazy Susan. Do y'all know what that is? The, the thing that spins in the middle of the table. And, uh, so there's this massive round table, about 10 people sitting at the table, and a, and a lazy Susan in the middle that spins. And I didn't know what that was for. 
Um, the waiter came around and took our order, and I ordered the, the meat entree that I wanted. Everything came with rice and, uh, and peanuts, oddly enough. But, uh, so I ordered chicken because I thought, safe bet, I'm going to go with chicken first meal in China. So um, I ordered chicken thinking this is, this is what I'm going to eat. I don't know what they're going to eat, but I'm eating chicken. All right, well, little did I know that the, the waiter comes back and serves everybody a little bowl of rice and peanuts and, uh, and chopsticks. And then a few minutes later, he brings everybody's entree. Well, it gets set down on the Lazy Susan. So I grab the chopsticks. I'm getting the chopsticks ready. And I go to grab my chicken, and all of a sudden that thing spins. And now I've got somebody's beef. I go to grab the beef, and it spins again. And now I've got somebody's pork. I was like, okay. What's going on here? I, I ordered the chicken. And I realized that when they have a meal together, everything is shared. You may order chicken, but you're going to eat his pork. <laughs> That's just the way it goes. And he's going to eat your chicken. But I love that about our Asian culture, that the Asian friends, that's the way they do. They share a meal, they share all of the meal. And when we look at sharing meal, breaking bread together, it's sharing food is like sharing life. And that's what the Bible is telling us. It's every meal um, is, is a gathering point where we come together. We point our affections toward Jesus together. They devoted themselves to prayer. The apostles had seen Jesus's devotion to prayer. He had taught them how to pray. He taught them how not to pray. They learned a posture of dependence on God from their Savior. Prayer is humility in action. When you drop to your knees, you are literally saying, I cannot do this, but you can. That's what prayer is. It's communion. It's fellowship with the Almighty. Do you know what you have when you pray? These early Christians did. The early church, as we read through Acts, we'll see that they pray while they wait. They pray before they preach. They pray when they're in trouble. They pray when a brother's in prison. They pray while they're being persecuted. They pray over the sick and the hurting. They pray while walking down the road. They pray in their homes. They pray in the temple. They are a praying people. And what we see is that a healthy church is a praying church. So they were devoted to these things and they were marked by some other things. There were some other things going on that marked this church. We see in verse 45, they were marked by radical generosity. Verse 45 says, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need. This is radical. Can you imagine um, finding out that I have a financial need? And going out and selling your car and giving me the money. That's what these people are doing. They're selling their possessions and giving as people have need. It's radical generosity. What we see is that they receive, they rejoice, and they release all that they have. This is stunning. And again, radical generosity puts the gospel of Jesus on display if you read in Acts chapter 4, you see that none of this gathering, none of these people held on to their stuff and said, this is mine. Now, I grew up in a house with uh, three little children, soon to be more, uh, apparently. Uh, if you don't know, we found out we're pregnant and um, this week found out we're having twins. Uh, shocking, shocking news. Um, 
So about to have more, more children in our house. But let me tell you a phrase I hear a lot in my home. That's mine. I don't know if you're familiar with that. But that's what I hear um, right before we usually hear some smacking and some hair pulling and screaming. That's mine. That's mine. This early church didn't say that. They never made that declaration about their stuff. They saw their stuff as as tools in their hands to make much of a greater treasure. Listen to me, church. Part of our problem with our stingy greediness and our hoarding nature is that we treasure the wrong things. We live as if this stuff really matters. And in the end, there will not be a U-Haul behind your hearse. You won't take it with you. So while you have it, use it to make much of Jesus. This church, these early disciples, they took the stuff that God give them, gave them and they said to the world, we don't treasure this, we treasure our king. They had radical generosity. They had radical new rhythms. We read uh, in verse 46, and day by day they did these things. So here's what we see is that the gospel doesn't, it's not just an experience. It's a life changing encounter. Your world radically changes when you meet King Jesus. He doesn't just save you and send you right back to your old rhythms. No, he saves you for a new way of life. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. You can't walk your path and his path. This early church adopted new rhythms day by day. It wasn't a flash in the pan experience. It was a life changing encounter. They praised God and had favor with men. Praise God and favor with men. I love that expression. What, what I, the only thing I just want to acknowledge here is that they were consumed with making much of Jesus. Uh, Tucker read from Psalm 34 this morning. That first verse says, uh, basically, his praise will ever be on my lips. This early church is consumed with praising God. Making much of God makes for favor with men. They were kind and loving to all. They looked on their fellow man with sincere love. And that love was compelling and attractive. When people sense that you genuinely care about them, they want to know why. And the answer to that question is because Christ genuinely cares about you. Lastly, what we see uh, just as an expositional walkthrough is gospel growth. We see the Bible says the Lord added to their number. The people of God were living as a radical new gospel community and the power of the gospel was on display. Listen, church, listen, the way we live as a radical new gospel revealing community, the church is a gospel made visible in the way that we're generous, in the way that we love, in the way that we give, in the way that we fill in the blank. We are the gospel made visible. That's why the title, Gospel Revealing Community. 
So for the rest of our time today, I want to press into uh, one main aspect of this text. In verse 44, Luke writes this expression. He says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Listen to that. All who believed were together and had all things in common. What we see here is the power of God to establish a people. These are people who have little to nothing in common. But the gospel unifies their diversity. Look back at verse 42. It starts, it starts with a little bitty word. And then that pronoun is used throughout the text. The little bitty word in verse 42 is and they. Let me ask you, who is they? Who are these people? Who are these people who have devoted themselves to this teaching and fellowship and breaking and bread and prayers? Who are they? You might be tempted to think that these are the people who've been having Sunday lunch at grandma's house for, for years, every Sunday week. You know, they, they meet at grandma's house, they go through the buffet line, they sit down and talk, they laugh, Uncle Rob's asleep in the recliner. I mean, you might be tempted to think that because of the, the way the story unfolds, it seems like it's very family. Right? That's the imagery we get. Is these people have to have known each other for years and been doing life together for years. This is a family. We're looking at a family. But when we read the word they, who are they? In verse 42. Well, verse 41 answers that question. It refers to those who received his word. Well, whose word? Peter's message. What was Peter's message? Peter said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. That was the promise, the, the plea of his sermon. Well, why, why, what prompted that plea? Well, they had cried out, what must we do? Now, why would they say that? They said that because they knew they were in trouble. Verse 36. This is where we get to the bottom of who they are. Verse 36, Peter said, God has made him Lord and Christ whom you crucified. The Bible says they were cut to the heart. They saw in the moment the glory of the king and the guilt of their lives. God has made him Lord and Christ whom you crucified. We have this collision of the glory of King Jesus and the guilt of every man. And so they cry out, what must we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. And your sin can be forgiven. And you'll be baptized into his family. They... Are those who received his word. They received mercy by way of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, the Christ. God has made him both Lord and Christ. When we see Lord, Lord means king. Lord means king. He's master. He's boss. He's in charge of everything. The picture here is from Philippians 2. You're familiar probably with this passage. It says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will what? Bow. And every tongue will what? Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Come on, say it. Jesus Christ is Lord. It means he's king. He's king. You bow your knee to the king. And everyone will. Either now or later. But everyone will because he's king over it all. God made him both Lord and Christ. When we see the word Christ, it's the word Savior, Christos, Messiah, the anointed one, the one God sent to rescue. Jesus is building his kingdom through his rescuing work and his reigning work. Jesus came to rescue. He's king, meaning he is the lion of Judah. And he is savior, meaning he is the lamb of God. Revelation puts those things smack together with the imagery of the lion and the lamb in the last day. And you need to know Jesus is your conquering king and he's your rescuing redeemer. These people, they were those who received that message and repented of their sin and trusted in Christ as both Lord and Savior. Every person that enters the family of God must come, not by their merit, but by his mercy. You don't come by merit, you come by mercy. And it's repentance and trust, faith in the Lord Christ. But when we look back to our text, what we see is the diversity of this people. Right? Remember, Acts chapter 2 begins with a crowd gathering. Where did they gather from? Well, they came from at least 15 different different ethnicities, different places in the world. They've gathered and multiple languages are now, um, multiple ethnicities and multiple languages are now brought together by the Spirit of God. And they're hearing the preaching, the, the praise and the preaching of the people of God in a way they can understand by the power of the Spirit. So these people are not the same. They are very different, very diverse. And what I want us to see here is the power of God to establish a people who are unified. They're not uniform. They are unified. It's diversity unified. That makes much of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't have um, time to dig into this deeply, but I need to point out that differences do not naturally lead us to unity. Do you know that? Differences do not naturally lead us to be unified. In fact, it's just the opposite. You know, um, if you're an Auburn fan, you probably don't go hug up to Alabama fans. Or if we could go on with that forever. There's lots of differences that don't unify us. But I want to point out three things that are, um, should grieve the heart of God's people. Here they are. In December 2019, a 14-year-old boy was severely beaten on a school bus for wearing a red MAGA hat. Political differences can cause disunity. A few weeks ago, I observed and saw that a lady, I personally saw this, a lady on social media was publicly shamed for suggesting that businesses should reopen 
We should start getting back to life in, as normal. Um, she was accused of loving money, the economy, and hating people. Because apparently that's what that means. Differences of opinion can cause great disunity. One more example. Recently, a young black man in Georgia named Ahmad Arbery was jogging in a neighborhood in Georgia. He was shot and killed by white men who thought he looked like the description they had heard of a burglar in the area. Racial differences can cause painful disunity. These are just three examples that um, certainly we can agree. The difference, differences and diversity do not naturally lead us into unity. And yet... What we see in this text is the power of God to establish a people. 3,000 plus plus people were added. We had 120 in the upper room and now 3,000 people from at least 15 different nationalities are brought together. And the Bible says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They, it's this unified, diverse group. And Luke makes one of the most shocking statements in verse 44, and we just read right past it. He says, and they were all together and had all things in common. That's remarkable, isn't it? This people from all over the world, all these different languages, all these different cultural biases, political biases, leadership biases, differences of opinion, probably racist biases. And what does Luke say? He says they had all things in common. It's unbelievable. Why is it unbelievable? Because it's not natural. It's supernatural. It's a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit. I could go on for a long time about this, but I want to give you two things that they had in common. Luke says they had all things in common. I just want to give you two. Two things they had in common. These people, they had a common affection. A common affection. Worship, worship unifies people. Now, I'm not talking about singing songs or attending a service. I'm talking about treasuring something in your heart. I'm talking about treasuring love. Listen, they had a shared love. When uh, Lauren and I got married, uh, which was 11 years ago yesterday, um, when we got married not long after that, I don't know why, but we got a dog. Anybody else do that when you got married? Uh, I'm sorry. Um, so we got a dog, and uh, I will say this. Um, we, we loved that dog together. There was something about our love for someone else, our treasuring of something else together that built a unity between us. Now, we, we now have children, and so the dog's in the backyard. Um, but 
Our children are an even greater example of how love is shared and it unifies us. When that little baby was born, when, when my Riley was born and I held her in my arms, I leaned over her mother in the, in the delivery room bed and, and we, we wept together in joy and love over a shared affection. They had a common affection. If children and dogs have that unifying effect on our hearts, what about the Lord Jesus? We have a common king and a common worship affection for Jesus, and it breaks all barriers of diversity. Doesn't matter what differences we have, we have the same glorious king, and we worship him. Why do we love him? 1 John 4 tells us why. It says we love because he first loved us. Listen, I love what 1 Peter 2 verse 10 says. I don't, know if, uh, I don't know if we can put it on the screen. Look at these words up here. Listen. In fact, will you read them aloud with me? Listen. Say this with me. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Listen to me. What makes us God's people? What makes us kingdom people? We have the mercy of the king. We've received the mercy of King Jesus. Because of that, we have a common affection for the king. We we were not a people, but now we are God's people. We have common affection. Secondly, they had a common allegiance. A common allegiance. Jesus had given his people a mission. Our work, if our worship unifies us, our work unifies us. They had a shared love and they have a shared Lord. We have a common allegiance. Here's what I mean. Jesus gave his people a command. You receive power. The Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. He said in Matthew 28, go, therefore, and make disciples. We've been given a mission. And our work, our witness, our mission brings us together because we have a common allegiance. To King Jesus as our Lord. Our Lord. We bow our knee to Him. We confess Him as Lord. Because He is. Kingdom people. Give their total allegiance to King Jesus. The church is the method through which Our king has chosen to accomplish his mission. I want you to think about it. Which came first, the church or the mission? Think, a little trivia. Which came first, the church or the mission? Do we know? The mission. You'll be my witnesses. That's an act one. In Acts 2, the church is born. Listen, God gave his mission 
And then he gave the method through which he intends to accomplish it. Ephesians 3.10 says, The manifold wisdom of God will be made known through the church. What declares the wisdom of God? It's a people who are radically diverse and radically unified. So here's our takeaways for today. First, I want to call you to repent and trust in King Jesus. Receive Him as Lord and Savior. Maybe you've done that already. Still, the call is to repent and trust Him every day. Repent and trust Christ. Secondly, reject anything that divides us. Reject anything that would drive a wedge between you and a brother or you and a sister. Jesus put such a high priority on our unity that he says, when you come to worship God, if you have an offense against a brother, leave your offering and go deal with it. He prayed in John 17, Father, I pray that they would be one as we are one. Right before he dies, his concern is the unity of his church. Reject anything that divides us. And thirdly, let's walk in the unity of the spirit. This is a supernatural work. Only God can do it. But let's pray that God would make us a kingdom diverse people that Reveal and reflect the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is not revealed when the only people who are gathering have um, the same skin, the same jobs, the same lifestyle, the same preferences, the same this, the same that, the same, same, same. The world can have that kind of unity. We're not interested in the world's unity. We want the king's unity. So I want to encourage you to walk in the unity of the Spirit. And that means push down your preferences and embrace those who are not like you. Welcome them into the family just as you've received mercy and been welcomed into the King's family. Let's extend mercy to the world around us. And let's have a gospel-revealing community, a Christ-exalting kingdom. Let's be the King's people. Amen.